Hey guys, just a little bit of housekeeping before we dig in. First, this is our 50th episode, which doesn't include collabs with other pods. So we'd like to take this time to thank all of you for listening to our little pod. We can't tell you how much it means to us, and we hope to continue for a long, long time to come. So keep on listening, and please keep spreading the word. It means everything to the growth of the show. The second bit of business is on July 19th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join Lainey Hobbs, who is host of the amazing True Crime Fan Club podcast, and myself on Spotify Live for an in-depth discussion about the Stephen Avery case, which, if you're not familiar, was the subject matter of the Making a Murderer documentary on Netflix. The Avery case has always been of great interest to me because aside from how the documentary was produced in a way to lead the viewer to reach the conclusion that Avery and Dassey were innocent and had been framed, common sense and logic could not bring me to understand why Avery would have done it. He had just been released from an 18-year stint for a crime that he did not commit. He had a documentary crew that was following him around constantly because of the case that he had just been exonerated on. And maybe most of all, he had a civil case that he was going to collect on sooner rather than later. And I'm talking about a huge amount of money. So in order for me to believe that he committed the horrible crime against Teresa Halbach, I would have to conclude that he was a complete psychopath who simply could not control himself. And from every video and audio clip that I have ever seen or heard of Stephen Avery, I just cannot reach that conclusion. And Brandon Dassey, well, that's a whole different can of worms. At any rate, it's going to be an incredibly interesting discussion. So download the Spotify Live app and join in on the fun with Lainey and I on July 19th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Mark your calendars. Now, let's get back to it. As every day passes by in the investigation of the Hunter and Sherman killings, Omaha PD the victims' families, and the citizens of Omaha become less and less confident that an arrest is going to be made as the trail has begun to run cold. Nearly everyone from the inner circle of both Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman has been looked at at this point, some much more closely than others, and there simply has not been anyone that has developed into a full-blown suspect. We are now months and months into the investigation of the case, and neither the apparent motive or the intended victim have been identified by law enforcement. When law enforcement dives into a case like this, it begins with the victim in the very center of a circle, and law enforcement will start in what I would describe as a series of concentric circles that start with people that are closest to the victim. And once all of those people are investigated, the next concentric circle of people are investigated, which includes acquaintances, associates, and leads that may have been developed during the investigation of the inner circle of family and friends. And the investigation will continue in this fashion until either a viable suspect is developed or the case goes cold. As you can imagine, as the rings around the center or the victim continue to mount the relationship between the victims and those in each successive concentric circle become more and more remote until such time that it seems that the only explanation is that the killings had nothing to do with the victims, but were in fact a random killing 
that appears to have no causal connection to the victim at all, meaning that there is no connection either in actuality or perceived with the victim that could logically explain the motives for the crimes. And such is often the case with serial killers. Their victims are typically not selected for any particular reason other than that victim fits into the serial killer's victim type. What causes a serial killer to lock on to a certain type of victim, whether they target children, women, men, the homeless, people of color, sex workers, etc., varies from killer to killer. But when it appears that a certain group of individuals is being targeted within a certain region, this often is what leads law enforcement to realize that there is a serial killer active. And if they find that that killer has left signature clues, then law enforcement then begins to put together a profile, which will indicate that, in fact, they believe that it is one person that may be killing the certain victim type. It is the randomness of the victims that makes law enforcement's job so difficult and lengthy in determining that they may be dealing with a serial killer. But as the concentric circles of an investigation grow further and further out from the victim, which always is the center, the possibility that the serial killer may be responsible for the crimes becomes part of the thought process of law enforcement. And with the Hunter and Sherman killings, it is getting very, very close to this point for Omaha PD, as they have exhausted nearly anyone and everyone on their list, even those with only tangential connections to Shirley or Thomas. And they are now working within those remote fringe circles in the hopes of finding a killer. What they're running into is dead end after dead end. Now, the reason that we are discussing this at this point in time is to briefly bring us back to the murder of Joy Blanchard, which was described and discussed earlier in the season, and which occurred some four and a half months prior to the murders of Shirley and Thomas in Omaha. Now, if you recall, early on when we were discussing the Blanchard case, we told you by the time that Omaha had landed on Anthony Garcia as their suspect, and we became involved in the case, Omaha PD had made a point of whitewashing any and all police reports that may have existed where Omaha PD acknowledged that they were looking very closely at the possibility that the Blanchard and Sherman Hunter killings were connected. Now, when I say whitewashed, I mean there was not one report that existed within the 15 binders tendered to us as defense attorneys, which included thousands and thousands of police reports and hundreds of photographs and taped interviews of witnesses and potential suspects that mentioned the name Joy Blanchard. Now, if you're sitting out there thinking, well, why would they mention Blanchard within the context of the Sherman and Hunter killings? Well, our answer would be this, that Joy Blanchard was a middle-aged white female, much like Shirley Sherman, who was brutally murdered in her home by a killer who used knives from within the victim's homes and left those knives impaled within the victim's necks, which is incredibly rare. There was also no evidence of sexual assault of any of the victims and no items of apparent value were removed from either of the homes. Those appear to be very, very similar MOs. And we know for a fact 
that they were investigated as if they could be connected because of the singular FBI memo that Allison discovered buried within the thousands and thousands of random documents. That little memo was absolutely the proverbial needle in the haystack that inadvertently made its way into our hands. We may never have discovered the potential connection between these two cases, and as we sit here today, we still don't know what, if any, headway Omaha PD may have made with respect to these two incredibly similar cases being connected. And why is that, you may ask? Well, the answer is simple. Tunnel vision. Law enforcement nor the county attorney had any desire to have us digging around into any other potential suspects in the Hunter Sherman killings. And I have to believe that they must have spent an extraordinary amount of time removing any mention of Joy Blanchard's name from the entire investigation file. This fact that either in the Blanchard file or in the Hunter Sherman files, that neither one of them cross-referenced the other case would become a huge bone of contention between ourselves and the state, as it appeared to us to amount to a potential Brady violation which occurs when the prosecution deliberately withholds information which could contain exculpatory information or evidence as to Anthony Garcia. Does that sound far-fetched? Well, it's not. I mean, think about it. The state knows that we don't either have the time nor the resources, such as people with guns and badges, to conduct a full investigation into the possibility that two and eventually three cases are all connected. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, that seems like a slippery and disingenuous move on the part of law enforcement and the state, well, that's because it is. Despite the fact that we had little to work with during our investigation, we ultimately believed that there was a connection between the cases, so much so that we gave the state notice that we intended on naming a different suspect during our case in chief. But we are going to make you wait until we get there, right before we cover the trial to tell you all about it. It'll be worth the wait, we promise. Right now, though, let's get back to what Omaha PD must consider to be its best and last hope in finding its killer. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 14. Russian to judgment. Last episode, we went into great detail about Anthony Garcia's first residency in Utica, New York, in which things did not go well for him, and he was ultimately shown the door. This would become one of the state's building blocks in creating its narrative that Anthony Garcia was a deranged lunatic hell-bent on exacting revenge on those who he believed were responsible for his career being in utter shambles. Now, as we told you from the outset of this case, that I am personally trying to remain as even-handed as possible when discussing the facts of the case as we proceed through the narrative. But as I am known to do from time to time, I interact with our listeners on our social media pages. And one of our listeners commented on a post that stated 
that he felt that we were going out of our way to make Garcia's behavior at his first residency seem normal. And we want to clarify so that if there are others out there that believe that we were normalizing Garcia's seemingly bizarre behavior during his time in Utica, that we are reading directly from the reports that were tendered to us, the defense, in discovery. And those reports came directly from the staff that had written them. We make no apologies for how it appears that Garcia was acting towards the staff, because it is what it is. We merely wanted to point out that even if some considered Garcia's personality to be wooden, or others believed that he was disrespectful and indifferent, that these personality traits do not amount to him being a murderer. And we also wanted to point out that many doctors have huge egos, which to many people can be very off-putting. Now, this certainly does not hold true for all doctors, of course, but it is not a completely infrequent occurrence either. And we would love to hear from some of our listeners out there that happen to be nurses, and I know that you're out there, because it is these fine people that would know better than most whether what we have said about doctors and their egos holds true. All that being said, if we are to chalk up Garcia's behavior as being a result of an overinflated ego, does that alone indicate that he could have been a murderous fiend? I don't believe so, but maybe that's just me. Possibly it boils down to whether or not Garcia's ego would or wouldn't allow him to accept his own role in how things went down in New York. It certainly appeared from his, you can't fire me because I quit letter, that we read to you that he was not accepting any of the blame. And when we get to his time in Creighton in the not too distant future, you will see that his time there was not too dissimilar from his time in New York. It may even be viewed by some as even a bigger red flag, as he had many of the same complaints about the staff at Creighton in terms of him feeling that he was being marginalized and discriminated against because of his Hispanic heritage. And the fact of the matter is, is that I wasn't there. None of us were. We were tendered reports that were generated by the staff of Creighton's pathology department. And those, of course, contain only one side of a two-sided story. So, we must give it the appropriate weight. But figuring out just exactly how much weight that is, is the real trick. Remember, we are not presenting Garcia's backstory to paint him as a sympathetic figure during these time frames, but rather to isolate the various incidents so that you can evaluate them each independently, as opposed to them all at one time as if they had all occurred simultaneously or in succession, because they didn't. The state's narrative covers a 14-year span of time, and when the horrors of the crimes become the overriding factor when one thinks about and analyzes the facts and evidence presented in the case, and when the state crams everything that occurred in Garcia's past into a tightly knit narrative, the fact that it spans nearly a decade and a half gets lost in translation. We will remind you of this fact from time to time as we progress. But at the end of the day, how you choose to interpret the information that we give you will ultimately steer your psyche one way or another towards guilt or innocence. 
because you will never get smoking gun evidence in this case because it doesn't exist. You won't get forensic evidence that ties Garcia to either crime scene. It will be the story. It will be death by a thousand paper cuts as far as the state's narrative goes. So consider this as us merely planting the seed of the presumption of innocence, which, by the way, is how every single defendant that ever sits in judgment is to be considered until the state can prove otherwise beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's not the way that I think it is because I'm a criminal defense attorney. That's the way it is because that's the way the Constitution states that it must be. The reality, however, is that I have never in my 20 years of practicing have felt in any case that I have tried that I didn't have to prove that my client was innocent. It's not the way that it's supposed to be, but it's the way that it is. Meanwhile, back in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Detective Scott Warner and FBI agent John Robitaille have followed the Russian into the medical examiner's office to conduct the long-awaited interview. Will the Russian be agreeable to the sit-down? Well, let's dig in and find out. Two quick notes before we begin. One, like many of the early recordings that we have with respect to the Hunter Brumbeck killings, the interview with the Russian, which went on for hours, is completely unintelligible meaning that all of the wizardry that Darren has in his bag of tricks could not make this interview something that we could put in the pod. If you listen to the Gacy tapes from the beginning, think about how difficult it was to understand what the creep was saying before Darren remastered the first four episodes. Remember? Well, now multiply that by 100, and the fact is that it can't be used. You would understand maybe every 10th word, maybe. So, you're stuck with me, and I will not be doing the Russian accent because Darren's vetoed it for various reasons. And of course he's correct, no matter how much I wanted to do it. Plus, it probably would sound much more like the Count from Sesame Street than it does a Russian. So at the end of the day, I think that we're all better off. But I digress. Warner, Robitaille, and Walsney, the Calgary cop, all remain standing as they wait for the Russian to appear from somewhere within the interior of the large, busy office that they are waiting in. After a short period of time, a trim-looking white male in his mid-forties with salt-and-pepper hair approaches the officers and asks them how he can help them. Wolzny takes the lead and identifies and introduces himself and inquires of the Russian if they would be able to speak with him privately in an empty office. The Russian agrees, and while he is fluently speaking English, his Russian accent is present, but does not interfere with the cop's ability to understand what he is saying. He leads the three men into an office with a small table and invites them to sit. Before they do, both Warner and Robitaille introduce themselves and their offices and explain to him that they have come a long way to speak with him, from Omaha, Nebraska, as a matter of fact. The Russian nods his head, indicating that he understands and he doesn't appear to be outwardly nervous or anxious by the fact that there are three cops here to interview him. Warner again confirms that he is agreeable to speaking with them, and again, the Russian agrees, at which time, Officer Walzny excuses himself, leaving just the two men from Omaha and the Russian in the room. 
Warner wastes little time in telling the man why they are there. He explains that they are here to speak to him about the murders of Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter back in March of this year. It's unclear to Warner whether initially the Russian didn't put together the fact that they were there from Omaha to speak to him about the murders of Shirley and Thomas, or whether this was genuinely news to him, as he was unaware of the murders. But either way, Warner notes that the Russian states that he's surprised that they had made the long trip to Calgary to speak with him about the double homicide. Just doing the job, Warner explains to him. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, specifically about your time at Creighton? The Russian settles in and begins answering the questions. Well, I left Omaha back in 2007 and have not been back since. I originally arrived in Omaha back in 2003 to start a residency program at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which I left in January of 2004 for academic reasons. Okay, what did you do after that? Well, I hung around Omaha after my time at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. In the August of 2004, I was accepted into the residency program in the pathology department of Creighton University Medical Center. Okay, and how did that go? Warner asks. It went okay. I graduated from the program in 2006. Now remember, at this point in time, both Warner and Robitaille have thoroughly reviewed the Russian's file that was provided to them by Creighton. But like any experienced investigators, they do not tip their hands when the Russian may say something that they know not to be true, at least not initially. Okay, so you successfully completed the program in 2006. Let me ask you this. When did you become aware that Bill Hunter's son had been murdered, if ever? Well, I originally heard about the boy and the lady being killed from a friend of mine in Omaha named Aaron. I had met her during my time at the University of Nebraska Medical School, and we've remained friends ever since. I actually still have several friends in the Omaha area that I talk to on occasion, but Aaron had called me shortly after the murders had occurred and told me about them. Uh, okay, so what exactly did she tell you, if you recall? Well, just that Bill Hunter's son and a cleaning lady had been killed in his home. You know that I've spoken with Bill Hunter several times since I left Creighton, mostly so that he could sign off on some accreditation paperwork that I needed done in order to complete my doctorate in pathology. Warner's a bit surprised by this admission. I wasn't aware that you had spoken to Dr. Hunter since you left Creighton. Before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about your background, you know, your Russian background? Yes, I was born in Russia. Both my mother and father were of Russian descent. Sadly, my mother died when I was only four years old. I have no memory of her. She died of natural causes, and my father died when I was 10 years of age from lung cancer. I was raised by an aunt of mine after my father passed away. Wow. That's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that your childhood was so traumatic, Warner said, sounding genuinely empathetic. Well, thank you. Life in Russia can be very difficult. I survived it, though, and I ultimately went to university and received a bachelor's degree in nursing. Really? Nursing? That's interesting. So, initially, you didn't want to be a doctor? Yes, I did. 
But the education system in Russia is very different than it is in the United States. It's a much different process. At any rate, after I received my degree in nursing, I joined the Russian Navy. Really? Why did you decide to enlist right after getting your degree instead of just going right to work? Warner asked, as he was actually curious to know the answer. Well, again, detective, Russia is a very different country than the United States. And I received my degree during the early 1980s when we were still in a cold war with the United States. At that time, in my country, military service was a mandatory requirement for all young men. I had no choice in the matter. Hmm, I did not know that. God bless America, huh? So what did you do when your military service ended? The Russian, not at all amused by Warner's patriotism, continued. After my military service was complete, I then attended medical school in Russia. After I completed that program, I left Mother Russia and moved to Vancouver as an immigrant in the early 1990s. After the Cold War ended in the early 90s, everybody wanted to leave Russia. Most people did not want to be Russian citizens any longer. It was a very difficult place to live during the time that Russia was a communist country. You have no idea how difficult it was. Well, you're right about that. I couldn't imagine living like that. So did Canada accept you? Yes, I was accepted as an immigrant in Canada and was told that I could emigrate to Vancouver upon my arrival. Once I was there, I attended the pharmacology chemist program I had graduated from that program in the mid-90s and stayed in Vancouver and worked for a company called Stanley Pharmaceuticals. In the late 90s, I applied for a visa to come to the United States to continue my education. Okay, and did the U.S. grant you a visa? Yes, they did. And in 2002, I came to the States and I started the residency program to become an ND. I wanted to be a surgeon. My aunt, who had raised me, was a very powerful influence on me as a young man, and she was a surgeon. So you see, my goal was to be the same as she was, because she was a great woman. That's admirable, doctor. But let me ask you, why did you choose Canada over the U.S. initially? Because Canada was accepting immigrants at the time. The United States was not. Fair enough, but why Vancouver? The Canadian government gave me no choice. I was told that Vancouver was where I must go if I decided to come into their country. So, that is where I went. I became a Canadian citizen during my initial time in Vancouver. As we sit here today, I have dual citizenship with both Canada and the United States. Really? What about Russia? Are you no longer a citizen of Russia? Absolutely not. I denounced my Russian citizenship the moment I became a Canadian citizen. I have no desire to ever return to Russia or to be a citizen of that country. Okay, I understand. So tell me about your time at the University of Nebraska. How'd that go? As I'm sure you know, detective, it did not go well. I struggled mightily with my academics initially and was placed on academic probation. Well, I'm a bit confused. Weren't you already a doctor when you came from Russia? Yes. I had received a medical degree in Russia, but it was not accepted completely in the United States, and I had to continue my education to become a medical doctor in the States. As I said, I struggled initially for two reasons. One, the program was very difficult, and I had a language barrier. 
My English was not very good when I first immigrated to North America. Well, I can imagine going to an English-speaking medical school when you don't speak the language very well would be incredibly hard. Yes, it was. I also believe that one of the reasons that I was placed on probation was because after six months I had learned that one of the other faculty members' wives had applied to get into the same program, and I believe that they thought me to be expendable. And I believe that I was placed on probation to force my hand so that I would leave the program, thereby making room for the wife to join the program. They, of course, would never admit that, but I firmly believe that to be the case. Okay. So, other than that, do you believe that you were treated unfairly by the program? No. I believe that I was treated just like everyone else. But I believe what I just told you which was that there were underlying issues which ultimately led me to leave the program. You see, being placed on probation would be reflected in my permanent record and would make achieving my goal of becoming a surgeon very difficult, if not impossible. So ultimately, I had to agree to leave the program, under the premise that I was not a good fit. I was therefore able to avoid being placed on probation. Is that when you applied to Creighton? Yes, it is. And is that when you first became aware of Bill Hunter? No. I had first come into contact with Bill Hunter when I was a resident at the University of Nebraska Medical Center because the pathology program at both schools are very small, so people have a tendency to know one another. It's a very unique field of expertise, Detective. Yeah, I I understand that. Now, I want to circle back to your time ending at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. How did you feel about the entire situation? Were you upset? Indifferent? Yes, I was upset. As I said, the program was very difficult and my English was not great. If you are asking me if I was angry, my answer is no. I was not angry. I was disappointed and frustrated that I didn't finish the program. I don't believe that I was treated unfairly. Fair enough. So what about your time at Creighton? How did you think you did while you were there? I believe I did all right. I recall at the end of my time at Creighton that Dr. Hunter told me that I was a, quote, outlier. He told me that I was not the best, but that I was not the worst either. I agree with that assessment. Now, as far as I know, that is not what the definition of an outlier is. An outlier is somebody or something that is different from and or stands apart from everybody or everything in a given group. I wonder if the Russian ever Googled that word, because I wouldn't consider it to be a glowing assessment of someone's ability to fit in within a group. It certainly doesn't indicate that he was a middle-of-the-road candidate. Quite the opposite. It's also strange that the Russian specifically recalls Hunter referring to him as an outlier. What is the Russian doctor playing at here? There's no way that he didn't look that word up if he didn't already know what it meant. And to give the cops what is clearly a false impression as to what he believes it to mean is very interesting. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's not. Warner continues. Let me ask you this. Did you have any issues with the people that you worked with while at Creighton? Yes, of course I did. 
Warner's slightly taken aback by the man's honesty in answering that question. Well, was there anyone in particular that he had issues with? No, not necessarily. Well, okay, are there any specific incidents that you can recall? At this point, the Russian is coming to understand that these two men have a great deal of knowledge about his time at Creighton. He believes, at the very least, that these men have reviewed all of the documentation contained within his file. It was time for him to be a bit more specific. Yes, there was a chief resident that I had some issues with, as well as one of the faculty members, a female doctor. She was Indian. Dr. Patel, I believe her name was. This is not the doctor's actual name. Tell me about your issues with Dr. Patel. What do you feel was going wrong with that relationship? The Russian thought carefully before answering. She treated me poorly, and I think that she did not believe that I belonged in the program. She was aware that I was going to be placed on probation at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and that I left instead of allowing that to happen. And I think because of that very reason, she was predisposed to thinking that I was in over my head at Creighton. Did you think that was unfair? I thought she had a right to voice her opinion because she was a part of the teaching program. The fact that she voiced that opinion wasn't the issue that I had with her, specifically. Okay, what issue did you have with her, specifically? Warner inquired further. Yes, indeed, these men know much more than they're leading on. I must answer these questions carefully. Well... There was one incident when I was given a pathology sample that was contained in a bottle. I was told that it was a testicle and that I was to provide Patel with the sample. I found her and told her that I was instructed to provide this testicle to her. She took the bottle from me and studied it carefully and went through the roof, screaming at me that it was a uterus, not a testicle. She was furious with me. Why was she so angry with you? It seems like it was an honest mistake. She did not see it that way. She felt that it showed my utter incompetence. This was the first of many times that she would yell at me. After the first few times, I simply began walking away from her while she was still screaming at me, as opposed to staying and engaging with her. That must have made her even more upset with you. Was she like that with other residents, or was she singling you out? Patel is a very high-strung woman. I observed her do the same thing with some of my fellow residents. Unlike myself, they would remain and allow her to scream and yell at them. I think she was ill-equipped to teach. Okay, so once you started just walking away from her, that must have made matters worse. What was her response to you doing that? I am aware that she went to Bill Hunter to advise him of my actions. He then called me into his office and she was in there. He instructed us both that sometimes people may not necessarily enjoy working with one another, but that out of professional courtesy, we must learn to be able to work together. Hunter considered it to be a teachable moment. Warner probed further. Did the relationship improve after this conversation with Hunter? Improved is a strong word, detective. She remained one of my instructors throughout the entirety of the program. Coexist is the word that better describes our relationship moving forward. 
Okay, so you coexisted. Did she continue to yell at you when you made mistakes? Not so much, but I could sense her resentment towards me when we engaged. I'm sure she could sense mine as well. We never became close, professionally. Okay, so you and Patel had issues. You said earlier that you had an issue with the chief of the residency program. Tell us about that. Yes, Mike Hamlin was the chief resident. Again, not his real name. My issues with this gentleman were more of the administrative nature as opposed to his teaching style. We had an issue with some time that I had taken off for personal reasons. Warner knew from his most recent conversation with Bill Hunter that this was the man that the Russian had accused of making sexual advances on him, which the Russian had rebuffed. He wanted to know if the Russian would come clean about this. Can you tell me specifically what the issue was? It was simply that Hamlin did not believe that I had appropriately requested vacation time for the days that I took off. I disagreed with him. That was that. Warner knew. It was much more than what the Russian was providing, but didn't push any further. Was there anyone else that he had issues with? For the most part, no. There were some secretaries that I felt treated me poorly, but overall I believe that I was treated fairly most of the time. Warner and Robitel were aware that several of the female employees had made it a point to let their bosses know that the Russian made them uncomfortable when they were alone with him, and the Russian did not seem willing to admit these issues. Warner again elects not to press the Russian any further on these questions because he doesn't want him to become uncooperative. So how did you feel about Bill Hunter overall? I felt Bill was a decent man. He was primarily the buffer between the students and the administration. He would be the one who would put out the fires. Do you feel like Bill Hunter advocated on your behalf during your time at Creighton? Yes, absolutely. Do you feel like you were treated differently because you were Russian? No, but I feel like you are here speaking with me because I am Russian. This took Warner by surprise, mainly because there may have been some truth to that statement. Well, I assure you that's not the case. Our job is to look into everyone that may have had an issue at Creighton, and you were one of those names that was provided to us. We are just doing our job, do you understand that? If you say so, detective... Warner can sense that the interview is becoming antagonistic, and he's good with that. Let me ask you this. During your time at Creighton, had you ever been to Bill Hunter's house? Hunter's home? I don't believe so. But I was at Patel's home one time, for a party. Okay. Did you ever meet Bill Hunter's son, Thomas? No, I don't believe that I ever met Thomas. Now here, Warner is acutely aware that Bill Hunter had Thomas at the office on several occasions, and he wants to know if the Russian is going to be truthful about this question. Are you sure about that, Doctor? Bill Hunter told us that Thomas had been to his office on multiple occasions during your time at Creighton. The Russian looked at Warner intently. This man is playing chess with me right now. He thinks to himself before answering. Now that you mention it, I may have met Thomas or one of his other sons at the office. 
I recall that he had his children at the office on several occasions, and Hunter also had pictures of his family in his office. I was never formally introduced to Thomas, though. Warner wanted to ask the next question very carefully, and had thought about it at length the night prior. Sir, let me ask you this. If someone had given us information that they believed that you may have had something to do with these murders, can you think of why that might be? The Russian looked as if he was thinking carefully about his upcoming response. Well, I will tell you the answer you seek, detective, but it will not be today. It will be on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, Bob here. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Defense Diaries. And finally, thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support. Whether it be $5 or $25 that you are pledging to us, it means the world to Darren and I. We are so thankful to all of you. And finally, to our amazing, beautiful listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to listen to our pod because, as you well know, without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time.